Well, good morning, Grace. It's great to be with you today. Didn't the kids do a nice job? I know we didn't have that many, but uh, you should have been here at 9 o'clock because the whole place was packed full of kids. So uh, just know that uh, our Grace kids are doing great things. We appreciate their reading and also the singing too. It's just great to be able to, uh, to have them involved because obviously they are a big part of this community. Sometimes we don't remember that, but... They are a big part of this community. So thank you for, uh, for welcoming them. I, speaking of kids, my own two, I have two boys, uh, and when they were little, they really loved going to parades. And I mean, you know, who doesn't really love a good parade, right? Well, usually I don't, but lots of people like parades. No, I just, you know, when it's, this parade that we used to go to, we used to live, uh, for several years, we lived right outside of Des Moines, Iowa, in this little western suburb called Urbandale. Anybody? Really? Urbandale? Woo! Oh, hey! There we go. Somebody who knows about Urbandale. Uh, well, Urbandale, they had this annual parade on the 4th of July, which was really, really impressive. Really, both in terms of quantity and quality. And so each year we would go and, you know, sweat it out with uh, thousands and thousands of our closest friends. And it would be, you know, it would, the candy was plentiful. That was great. But remember, it is Iowa, so there were also plentiful political candidates. That was not so great. But all in all, it was an amazing thing. But everybody was there, really, for the grand finale. If you, there was this, on this big, long street, and if you, if you looked down the street as far as you could see, you would see this little dot on the horizon, up in the air, all the way down there. And it would get bigger and bigger and bigger and louder and louder. It's a giant military helicopter, like a Blackhawk. And it comes flying down the street, and, and then... The first time we were there, this really caught us by surprise. It swooped down and kind of turned all the way around and then landed in this vacant field, like right across from where we were. I mean, the chairs are blowing over, the hats are blown off, and people are cheering, and it was amazing. Uh, but making an entrance like that sends, sends a message, doesn't it? I mean, you, you obviously get kind of the, the memo here, uh, and just for a moment, as we were all there together, and there just seemed to be this feeling, even if it was just for that little brief time, there seemed to be this sort of swelling of, of national pride, like almost like, well, you just don't mess with us. You know, here comes this helicopter, and it was fantastic. But the way that you make an entrance communicates something just by how you do it. So on this Palm Sunday, we're going to talk about the, a lot of times it's called the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And we're going to explore this together. Now, a lot of times we hear Palm Sunday talked about, maybe we've, we've grown up or been to church that, that, has, that has focused uh, on, on talking about Palm Sunday. And, and so that, there's part of that, that that this might be a repeat. But I hope that there's something here that we can learn together from this account of Jesus arriving in Jerusalem. That is, that is new and refreshing to you. Because a lot of times we talk about Palm Sunday, but we don't really know why. what's with the palm branches. What are we really doing? What difference does it make? Why do we talk about it? Why do we, why do we celebrate that? Why do we welcome Jesus in this way? We're going to get into all of that. But I just want to give you a disclaimer 
as we start out together, that, that this marks, this Palm Sunday marks the beginning of what we would call Holy Week. And I don't know if you know this or not, but m- much of the, the Gospels, the four Gospels themselves, much of what is written is dedicated to this last week of Jesus' life on earth. The rest of the, I mean, if you look at proportionally, how much time is spent talking about this last week and the rest of it is spent talking about over three years' worth of time, there's a clear focus on this. And that's, of course, intentional because this is where things really get, everything comes to a head. Everything gets very, very interesting. And so we want to take our time through this. So as we walk these next steps together uh, through this week, as a community, in one way or another, we'll talk about some ideas at the end of how we can do this. But don't, my, here's my counsel, don't be in such a hurry. Don't be in such a hurry. Because oftentimes we want to kind of skip over all of this and get right to Easter, right to the resurrection, and we don't end up taking the time to reflect on how we even get to the resurrection. Because the reality is there's no resurrection if there's not first a crucifixion. Sometimes we like to skip that because we don't really feel like we need to address that or talk about that. And so I just want you to take the time, explore the depths of the relationship that you have with our Savior, and ask him to teach you something new during this time that we have together. And so we're going to talk about the significance of Palm Sunday and why we're, we're even spending any time addressing it. And we'll get into that in just a moment. But before we do, let's, let's just pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for gathering us together. We thank you that, that by the power of your Holy Spirit that you knit us together. We know, Lord, that your Spirit is here right now with us. And we just ask that in these moments, Lord, that, that you speak to each one of us, directly to us. Speak words of life to our hearts. And so, Lord, I ask that it not be my words And that instead you transcend the stumbling and fumbling human language and make your word do what you want it to do. Work in our hearts. Lord, bring us from death in our sins to new life in you. We ask that you do that right now in these moments that we have together. We pray this and we ask this in Jesus' name. My man. Okay, so we're going to be looking at John chapter 12 today. And for, if you've been with us along our journey, we've been going through the gospel of John. We've only made it to John chapter 4, so this is kind of a jump to get all of a sudden to John chapter 12. But don't worry, we will go back and we will continue on after Easter. But we want to take this time to specifically walk through this last week of Jesus' life. So if you have a Bible, turn to John chapter 12. We're going to be looking specifically at verses 12 to 19 Today, and like I said, it's called the, oftentimes the, the triumphal uh, entry. Palm Sunday is, is what uh, we kind of call it. Uh, and so in order to catch us up a little bit, I just have to give you a little bit of an overview of what has happened in these chapters that we've now sort of fast-forwarded over for just a, a moment. Jesus has been going along this whole time, continuing to do miracles. John calls them signs because, again, John's whole point in writing this gospel is so that we might believe in who Jesus is. We might know him for who he truly is. And so John calls them signs because they point to Jesus. Okay, and so this, 
all along, we've talked about a couple of the miracles that Jesus has already performed. We've talked about the encounters that he's had with other people. We've talked about some of the conversations uh, that have happened along the way. But in chapter 11, which I know we haven't covered yet, but I'm going to summarize it. In chapter 11, Jesus does something so incredible that it gets everybody's attention. It is a major thing because Jesus had these really close friends, you might have heard these names before, Lazarus and Mary, Martha. They're sisters and a brother. And Jesus befriended this family and was really close with Lazarus, yes, but all three of them. But Lazarus had died. He had died and he had been in the tomb for four days before Jesus arrived on the scene. And so the sisters come out and they meet Jesus and they say, you're too late. He's already dead. He's been dead for four days. And Jesus, overcome with emotion, speaks a word and calls Lazarus out of the tomb. Been dead for four days. Here he comes out of the tomb, Lazarus. Not really a resurrection per se, but a resuscitation. After four days, here he comes. And this, the people are just amazed by. I mean, wouldn't we be if we saw something like this, right? So Jesus, he's all of a sudden really popular. So his popularity is like at an all-time high. The crowds start coming. The word starts getting out. People start coming. They just want to be around Jesus. They want to be there. And of course, the Pharisees and the religious leaders are seeing all this attention. We already know that they've been uh, suspicious of Jesus all along the way. And so now his popularity is only increasing that much more. Well, we know something about popularity, right? We, we know something about this sort of sweeping idea of getting caught up in the celebrity and the idea of, of hanging out with people that are powerful and well-known and all that kind of stuff. Because in this celebrity-obsessed culture that we live in, we think if we can just get close to the right people, or we could just know the right people, or be in the sphere of the influence of the right people, then we can get these powerful people to do the things that we want done. We want them to do what we want done. And we like to get close to the people that we think might have a shot at accomplishing it. We're excited when we think that they can give us just what we're hoping for, just what we're waiting for. And of course, as is the case with human nature, we're all in as long as they do it our way. As long as they see everything the way that we see it, they believe everything that we believe, they approach problems the same way we do, we're all in at that point. But when we're not, what happens? Canceled. Come on, that's worth at least a chuckle. <laughs> uh, canceled. We don't like it. We don't like it when we don't get what we want. We don't like it when people don't meet our expectations. And so these people that are gathering and starting and continuing to gather around Jesus, are, they're actually no different. This is all part of something that we have in us as humans. We want to be close to people that are powerful because we believe that they can help us. And in this particular case, this crowd of folks and these people that are gathering around him, they're looking to Jesus because they're starting to think. They're starting to connect these dots. You know, they've seen these signs and miracles that he's been performing along the way. And they think, well, maybe this is the guy that can actually get done what we want done. 
And the main thing they want done is to kick the Romans out of their territory. The Romans have occupied the territory of Judea and Jerusalem. So they, they would love to get the Romans out, out of Judea, of course, but especially out of the holy city of Jerusalem. Now this thing, this idea of getting rid of the foreign invaders is not something that is without precedent. This has happened before. Uh, 200 years, give or take, before this event that we're talking about. There were these uh, people, there, there was a group of people called the Maccabees. Now, you may have heard about the Maccabees, but, but the, they led a revolt that kicked out the foreign invaders that were in Jerusalem and Judea at that time. And the, the main stars of the show there uh, was a guy named Judas Maccabeus and his brother, Simon Maccabeus. Well, Simon was considered to be the hero. He was considered to be the one who actually got the job done, who, who swept in and, and kicked the foreigners out, led this successful revolt. And so when he came to Jerusalem, he cleansed the temple and restored the temple to be back in the central place of Jewish religious life. And when he came to town, the people greeted him by waving palm branches. They were waving palm branches. Palm branches themselves started to become a symbol of national pride. Uh, uh, it was almost like a, the palm you could think of as what we might think of as a flag, of, of a, a country, you know, a flag. And so the waving of these palm branches was, was starting to become associated with national pride uh, of, of the Jewish uh, people. So much so that when they minted coins, after the, the foreigners had been kicked out the 200 years previous, when they started minting coins, they even put palm branches on the coins. So if we, we start thinking about all that, then when we get into this account of Jesus coming and people waving palm branches, and we saw the, the kids up here waving palm branches, this is all going to be important for us to remember so that we can understand what's really going on here. But So let's jump in in uh, chapter 12, verses 12 to 13. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. Now, here we go. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Now, even though these are just two short verses, in terms of the length and number of words, they pack so much in. We could have a whole series just on this. But we're going to cover some real highlights today. We've already talked about this connection to the palm branches, so hopefully you can kind of see like th this is setting up for this entry, Jesus coming to Jerusalem. They're waving the palm branches, and just keep in mind that they, they have this previous understanding of what they think then Jesus is capable of doing and what they're waiting and hoping that he will accomplish. But also it says that this, I don't know if you notice it, it said that the crowd is there in Jerusalem for a festival. Big crowd had gathered in Jerusalem for a festival. Now the, festover, or the festival is Passover. You guys have probably heard of Passover. It is the single biggest and most important festival for the Jewish people, both, both then and now, because it reminds them and they remember how God rescued them from Egypt. And so at, at, the way it goes is that at that particular uh, time, 
God had sent this guy named Moses to come, and, and Moses was in charge of leading the people out of Egypt, and the Passover, the, the part of this celebration, uh, was that they would slaughter a one-year-old blemish-free lamb, and then each family uh, would take the blood, some of the blood, from that lamb and paint it on the doorposts, and those are the people that God would then spare in one of these plagues that he sent to Egypt to, to, let, to, to demand that Pharaoh let the people go. And so, again, this Passover celebration is a huge deal, and all these people have come into Jerusalem now to celebrate this. And most scholars say that they think, you know, the population of Jerusalem at the time was somewhere around 50,000, give or take. Well, when the Passover festival was happening, that population, in the entire area, the population swelled to at least double, maybe triple, maybe even more than that. And so just get this image in your mind of this, this large crowd of people that are all gathered together. And they hear not only about Lazarus being called out of the tomb, essentially being restored to life after being dead for four days. They hear about this. But then they also hear, well, Jesus, the guy who did it, is coming to town. He's coming to town. So you can, you can just kind of imagine the excitement that is in the air, can't you? The, the people looking out, where is he? Is he coming? The people going out of the town to, to find him and greet him. Because remember... They were expecting someone. They were expecting someone. They were expecting a Messiah or a Savior, someone to come because the prophets of God had been telling about this eventual Messiah, this anointed one, this Savior that would be coming eventually. And so they were expecting someone. But the kind of Savior they wanted and the kind of Savior that they expected, the kind of Messiah that they wanted Jesus to be, is not who Jesus is, at least not in the same way. And so when we think about, well, didn't they get it? Why didn't they understand? The reality is this is the same problem that you and I have, isn't it? We have a hard time sometimes receiving Jesus for the Savior that he is because we have a lot of expectations ourselves. So maybe today you're here and this is the first time you've ever really considered this idea of Jesus is your savior. Not, not just your king, but Jesus is your savior. Just those words alone. What images pop into your mind? What are the things that you think of? What, what are your expectations? If someone is a savior and that person has come to save you, what does that look like in your mind? What are your expectations? What are you waiting for? What are you hoping for? Because a lot of times, especially in churches, we end up thinking that, well, this, this idea of salvation is something that happens somewhere after we die. You know, if we can just get, get this all figured out ahead of time, then we'll experience whatever this salvation is at a future time. And so if, if that's all we understand salvation to be, if that's all we think we mean by what is salvation, then we're missing the entire point. Because wherever Jesus is, salvation is there. 
So right now in this place, the resurrected Jesus is with us here now. Salvation is here. Salvation is now. New life is happening right now for those who believe and follow him. Salvation is here. Now, th this, this idea of urgency and, and, and something happening right now, well, now this, the people, they understood this because of just the word that they're shouting. This word that we, we hear, it, it might sound familiar to us, Hosanna, Hosanna. When we, we hear this word, Hosanna. We hear this, if we've been part of any kind of Palm Sunday before, we've likely heard this. We've, we might have sang it in song lyrics, Hosanna. And so we tend to think that Hosanna means something like praise, worship, celebration, and it can mean those things because it's kind of evolved to mean those things over time. But really, the word Hosanna is a transliteration of two Hebrew words. Two Hebrew words, Hoshiana. It's those two words. And when we translate Hoshiana into what does it actually say, it says save now. Save now. This is what the people are shouting. They have this sense of urgency as they see Jesus coming and they're, they're starting to connect the, not, the dots and believe that he's the one that's going to come and do for them what they really want done, what they've been hoping for, what they've been waiting for. They're, they're shouting, save now, now, do it now. This all comes from, most directly anyway, from uh, a little verse in Psalm 118. You can check it out for yourself, but Psalm 118, uh, verse 25, uh, it says, Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. So again, there's this sense of urgency. Look, Jesus, let's get this thing going. They wanted their problem solved, and they thought Jesus was the one to get it done. But seeing Jesus as our personal problem solver creates a whole new problem for us, doesn't it? If that's all we think of when we think of Jesus, it's just that he's our personal problem solver, then we're not really understanding what Jesus is all about. Of course we should cry out for what we need. Yes, of course we should cry out for what we need. I'm not saying don't do that. But I am saying is that if that's all we do, then our perspective of who Jesus is is far too limiting. We tend to view Jesus only through whatever the issues of our day are. Whatever the issues of our particular culture at our particular point in history, we view Jesus through that, and that tends to limit our perspective and our understanding of the bigness of who Jesus actually is. So we end up being too limited, and what that does is it, it keeps us looking for temporary solutions to permanent problems. But in Jesus he is the permanent solution to even our temporary problems. Jesus is the permanent solution to even our temporary problems. The reason I say that is because even the problems that we have that are temporary are ultimately rooted. Eventually, they are rooted in this fallen world that has been fractured and broken, that has been separated from God's original creation, original design. And the thing that has separated 
not only the world, but us too, from God, is sin. We can say all we want today that sin doesn't exist or somehow, well, we're not sinners. Folks, we are. We, we are sinners. We all fall short of God's glory. We all at some point say to God, you know what? I've got it from here. I really don't need you to get involved. I can take things from here. Thank you very much. But when it comes to sin, even though all of us are guilty, none of us can fix it. None of us can fix it. But Jesus does fix it. He came to fix it. But how he went about it is most unexpected. It's most unexpected. He defies people's expectations. Now, like I mentioned, this Passover festival is going on on the day that Jesus is coming. Well, that day of the Passover festival would have been the day that families picked out the one-year-old blemish-free lamb that would then, in a few days after that, be sacrificed in the temple, and then they would eat, as a family, they would eat that Passover lamb. So as Jesus, you heard in the, in the reading that the kids said, uh, they talked about how Jesus was sad as he was approaching Jerusalem. Well, the reason he's sad is because he knows what they don't know. He knows that he's going to be rejected. He knows that whatever celebration is happening at that particular moment, that it was going to be very short-lived because he knew that he, Jesus, was the final Passover lamb. He was the final Passover lamb. He was the final sacrifice for all sin, period. But the people, well, they're not looking for another lamb, at least not a lamb that's a person. But remember, John the witness has helped us here over and over again. What did John say? He pointed to Jesus and said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold, the Lamb of God. So Jesus knows he is the Passover Lamb, the final Passover Lamb. But the people aren't looking for the Lamb. They're looking for a king. They want a king. And not just any king. They want a conquering king. They want a conquering king. And so, again, they think Jesus is the one to get the job done. And so they're shouting, blessed be the one who comes in the name of the Lord. That's also from Psalm 118. That's Psalm 118, verse 26. Uh, but then they say this other phrase that we need to spend a little bit of time talking about. Because this, this is where things start to get real interesting. Blessed is the king of Israel. Might not sound like much to you and I, but there is a lot of significance in that statement. Blessed is the king of Israel. Because that means that the people, as they're connecting the dots and they're trying to understand who Jesus is and what he's coming to do, they are thinking, this is the Messiah. This is the Messiah. So they've got that part right. The good news is, well, they found the king. They did find the king. The bad news is, well, he was not the king they were looking for. He wasn't the king that they were looking for. What about us today? When Jesus comes to us, do we recognize and receive him as the king? Or do we say, no, you know what? I'd rather do it my own way. Again, people like to be close to the folks that they think can get done for them what they're hoping for, what they're waiting for. But while these people are looking 
for a crown, Jesus is looking to the cross. While they're looking for a crown, Jesus is looking to the cross. And, and this still plays out today in all different kinds of forms, doesn't it? When we think about what does it mean to have a relationship with Jesus, how many times do we end up, whether we intend to or not, using or attempting to use Jesus as a mascot or even worse, as a weapon to get our way? I don't care who you voted for. I don't care what your politics are. doesn't matter if you're uh, liberal or conservative or uh, Democrat, Republican, whatever in between. The reality of it is, isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting that both major political parties claim Jesus as one of their own? Now, these political parties can't agree on anything, including, well, who does Jesus belong to? Both claim them for themselves. And we tend to get wrapped up into thinking, well, that's because they, they, really, they really care. No. Folks, politicians care about gaining power and maintaining power. That's all it is, gaining and maintaining power. And so we can try all we want to say, oh, it's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. But it's really just about us trying to get what we want. We can only try to negotiate our way out of this one so much before we just have to admit. Because how else can we possibly explain all of these people who claim to be followers of Jesus, who then use the name of Jesus as a weapon to condemn anyone else who doesn't agree with them? Is that anything like what we see here? So what about us? What about, I mean, spend five minutes on Facebook. How many comments does it take to get to a good old-fashioned death threat? right? And Christians are often the worst of the worst when it comes to this. We are making a mockery of who Jesus is. But we do like to think, well, if I can just invoke the name of Jesus or use the name of Jesus or he could be my buddy or he could be my mascot, well, then he might be able to get done what I think needs to be done. Because we like our way best. And so maybe, and it's okay, I'm not going to take a show of hands, but maybe just maybe, we're more interested in making Jesus into our own image rather than being conformed to his. We like our way best, but he didn't come so that we can get our way. Matter of fact, he came to save us from our way, to save us from our way. Well, this makes us uncomfortable. I don't know if you're uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable. But you know who else is uncomfortable? The Pharisees. The Pharisees and the religious leaders, this is the same kind of uh, discomfort. They're experiencing different circumstances, different contexts, but this all makes them very nervous. They don't like what's going on here, and they want to put a stop to it. They've tried all along the way to silence Jesus, but now he is wildly populator, populate popular. The people are going out to meet him. They're, they're waving the palm branches. They're celebrating him. Uh, they're, they're, they're calling him king. They're doing all these things. Well, guess what? The Pharisees kind of get a bad rap here because they're, they're upset about this and they think this needs to, to stop. And we think, oh, there are those pesky Pharisees again. They just can't get it figured out. But guess what, folks? They do have a legitimate reason to be concerned. We shouldn't be so quick to, to point our fingers at them and say, oh, well, thank, thankfully we're not like them. 
They're nervous because, again, when you start yelling something like, blessed is the king of Israel, well, that carries a lot of weight in a Roman territory, okay? You and I might not understand that, but Rome is always on the lookout for any sign of rebellion, and they will crush it immediately as soon as they see it. So the, Ro the Roman emperor, he was considered the king. He was considered the king of, of everything, o the king over everything and over everyone, period. So to have a bunch of people, a bunch of big crowd of people that are all crying out about how Jesus is the king, well, that's very dangerous because if Jesus is the king of Israel, then that means Caesar isn't the king of Israel. Okay, so this, this is real danger. And in modern day America, you and I can, well, we can walk out of this building. You can say it in here, Jesus is king. And you can walk out of here. You can go to anywhere you want. Uh, and you can say Jesus is king, and you're not going to really get in any trouble. You might get some funny looks, but you're not going to get in any trouble. But to say Jesus is king at this particular point could mean death penalty. So we're not going to get arrested for Jesus is king. But we need to understand that. And, and if you're from a part of the world or from a country or from a culture uh, that, that really does still operate this way, then you know more than, than anybody else, more than me, what we're really talking about here. Because there are parts of the, of the world now, if you start saying anything against any leader whatsoever, there are harsh consequences that come immediately. This was the same thing for the Romans. Matter of fact, in 70 AD, way after this all took place, in 70 AD, the Romans did. They completely destroyed Jerusalem. They burned the temple to the ground. The Roman army was not some group of people that you know, didn't have it together. Uh, they, they were lethal, and they were organized, and they could crush a rebellion instantly. And so when you've got all these people, these crowds of people that are all together, and they're all getting worked up, well, we all know, if we've learned anything over the last year, we've learned that when you get large crowds of people gathered together, and then you start mixing in racial, cultural, social, uh, even religious tension, you throw that all in the mix, things can escalate quickly, can't they? Things can go from, you know, everybody celebrating to everybody getting really even violent, right? But here's the deal. Jesus didn't come, at least this time, Jesus didn't come to overthrow the government. He didn't come to start a physical war. He didn't come uh, to incite any kind of violence, he came to bring peace. Now, when you and I hear the word peace, a lot of times we think, well, that just must mean the absence of conflict or the absence of violence. But the kind of peace that Jesus brings is peace that only he can provide. It's peace with God. It's a restored relationship with God the Father that had been lost due to sin. Again, Jesus is here to solve the real problem, the sin problem problem in an unexpected way but he wants to communicate this in a way that the people understand remember my parade story with here comes the helicopter it communicates a message just by the way that helicopter comes into view lands in the field and the people are, are going crazy it communicates a message well if jesus was going to be the king they wanted the one they were looking for then he would have come in riding a horse 
a war horse, the biggest horse that you could possibly find. Matter of fact, you guys have probably heard that expression, um, riding in on your high horse. That's what we're talking about here. A, a, a king, a conquering king would come into town riding the biggest, tallest war horse that you could possibly find. But that's not what happens here with Jesus. He doesn't come in that way. Take a look at verse 14. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. As it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him at the, and that these things had been done to him. Now, in Matthew's account, he gives us this little extra detail talking about it's not just a donkey, it's a donkey's colt. So you've got the donkey, and then you've got an even smaller version in the colt or the foal of that donkey. And this might sound very strange to imagine Jesus riding in on this type of animal, but this is exactly what had been prophesied about him hundreds and hundreds of years before. The, uh, the prophet Zechariah in chapter 9, verses 9 and 10, said exactly what's quoted here. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. He arrived just as was promised, just at the right time that was promised. All of it was predicted, and he fulfills all these prophecies right now in this event. It marks the beginning of this hour is now here. Remember, hour has not yet come. Hour has not yet come. He's, he's kept saying this all throughout. Now the hour has arrived. But the people, they didn't understand. They didn't understand just like we tend not to understand. But the good news is that Jesus is still the king that we need even when we don't want him, even when we don't understand him, even when we think we don't need him. And we're not alone in this. Remember the disciples, we just read in verse 16, the disciples, they didn't get it either. They had a very limited perspective, just like we tend to have a limited perspective. But our limited perspective doesn't limit Jesus. Our limited perspective doesn't ever limit Jesus or what he can do. And we know this to be true. How many times do we find uh, a, an event in our life that it's only after we get through it, only after, the whole time we're wondering, Lord, what are you doing? What is happening here? I don't understand anything that's happening here. And when it's over and we look back, then amazingly enough, we can see, oh, that's why. God was with me every step of the way. I just didn't understand what he was doing. I had too limited of a perspective. But what about when it comes to our perspective of who Jesus, who this Savior, who this Messiah is? What about when it comes to our perspective about that? What are your expectations of him? What, what demands are you making of him? And what happens when he doesn't meet your demands? 
What happens when he doesn't live up to your expectations? What happens then? Do we walk away? Do we reject Jesus? Do we say, hey, Jesus, I thought you were the one, but it turns out you're actually not the one we're looking for. Or does it even stop there? Maybe it goes beyond that. It certainly did for the Pharisees and the religious leaders. They weren't happy with just silencing Jesus. They wanted him dead. Look at verse 17. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. So in other words, the popularity just continues to grow. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. Again, they go out meeting him, waving palm branches, saying Hosanna, and yelling about how he's the king of Israel. And so the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look at how the whole world has gone after him. Now that last phrase, look at how the whole world has gone after him. Isn't it interesting that that's what the Pharisees find so threatening? They're so threatened by that because the whole world is going after him. And yet that's exactly the mission that we heard Jesus has come to accomplish in John 3.16. Remember, for God so loved the world. The world. That means you and me. And so here we have the whole world going after him. So John helps us see this discrepancy between the king we want and the king we truly need. Remember in John chapter 1, he told us that he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. What about us? When Jesus comes to us today, now, do we receive him or do we reject him? Because this is the same rejection that was going on here. Once Jesus clearly wasn't meeting their expectations, then this very same crowd who was shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the name of the one who comes, or blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Just a few days after were the same folks shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! He didn't meet their expectations. So he had to go. Isn't it interesting how quickly celebration can turn into crucifixion when Jesus doesn't meet our expectations? And yet, I want you to hear this. Knowing that we would reject him, knowing that we would betray him, over and over again and, and knowing that it would cost him his very life to accomplish his mission and even knowing that we wouldn't have it any other way he came anyway he came anyway knowing all of it because he loves us that much he came to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And he did it in a most unexpected way that defies our ability to, to even comprehend what he was doing. But he came again, not to be the king that we want, but the king that we need. Thank God for that. 
So as we walk the steps of this coming week, again, like I said at the beginning, don't be in such a hurry to get to the resurrection because the only way the resurrection happens is to go through the cross of Jesus. The weight of our sin is what nailed him to that cross. And so even though we would love to say, no, we're the ones celebrating Jesus. We're the ones that couldn't be more excited about receiving Jesus. The reality is just like his disciples, all of us have rejected Jesus. All of us have betrayed Jesus. And yet, even knowing we would do it, he still came and he still did for us what only he can do. We can't solve that problem by ourselves. No advance in technology, medicine, any kind of advanced. We will just use those things to continue to destroy one another. But Jesus has come that we might have life, not death, life, and have it abundant. So how will you, over these next few days, walk with Jesus? How will you spend some time getting to know him even more than you have before. We've got Facebook devotionals that we'll be having uh, every morning at 9 a.m. on Facebook. You can participate in those. Um, our student ministries pastor, uh, Bill Freund, he, he gave me an idea that he does with, with the students, which I'm now going to steal. Sorry, uh, there he is. Uh, let me know if I don't do it right. So he tells, remember the last couple of weeks I've asked you to think about who you would invite to come to Easter next week. And Bill says, get, get a pen out and write the name of that person on the palm of your hand. That, that can be your Palm Sunday. It can be a reminder of the mission of God sends us out to others to spread this good news, to, to bring people into relationship with Jesus. Who, who are you going to bring? And I, I think that this is, this is an important challenge for us. When it comes to how we tend to use Jesus to get our way or to to try to make him into a mascot or, or an, an endorser of our particular ideas or agenda? What if instead of arguing with one another, what if instead of death threats back and forth, what if we just actually got together and prayed for one another? What if we got together with, especially with people we don't agree with, and we just said, let's search the scriptures together. Let's, let's instead of, Let's talk and speak for Jesus. Why don't we get together and search and pray for what Jesus is saying to us? So maybe you'll have an opportunity to do that this week as well. Would you be an encouragement to one another during this Holy Week so that when we get together, we're going to gather again in this group on Good Friday, and then we're going to gather again to celebrate Easter on Sunday. So Take your time walking through this week in whatever way you choose. Just continue and I would say be intentional about asking God to prepare your heart to receive the miracle of the resurrection. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you continue to meet us where we are, that you lead and you guide and you bring us into places that are 
unexpected. But you don't leave us to do it alone, Lord. We know that you lead and guide us by your Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, we just now ask that as we prepare our hearts for this coming week and the weekend, that you continue to reveal yourself, the truth about who you are, that you continue to set us free, that you continue to invite us and encourage us into this new life with you, to leave the old behind. Lord, we surrender to you. Both this time and these next days in our lives, knowing that your way is the way. We just ask, Lord, that you make that more and more clear to us each day. Thank you for who you are and thank you for how you love us. In Jesus' name.